I'm Joseph. And I'm Nick. And this is Fish Jelly. Mmm, c'est bon, c'est bon. How are you? I'm good, how are you? Okay. A little upset stomach, but, uh, you know. Living my best life. Yeah. <laughs> Probably shouldn't have had those, uh, I shouldn't have put those uh, waffles in the air fryer. <laughs> Maybe I overdid it. Mm-hmm. Uh... Oh, to start. So RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars Season 6, Episode 10. We finally uh, get to witness the game within a game. Mm-hmm. Which, unbeknownst to us, after every episode, the eliminated queen lip-sync against the next eliminated queen. Mm-hmm. So, like, Serena Cha-Cha was the first to go. Next was Jiggly. So the first battle was against Serena and Jiggly. Mm -hmm. But what made this game special is Silky Nutmeg Ganache. Dr. Reverend. The Dr. Reverend Silky Nutmeg Ganache. There were eight lip syncs. And she she started in the third one. Mm -hmm. And then she proceeded to beat everyone. She beat Jiggly. Yara. Jan. Jan. Pandora. Pandora. Akiria bowed out. Akiria bowed out, but Jiggly, I'm sorry, Silky still asked to do her lip sync, even though there was no one to lip sync against. And that one I thought was her best. To Barbie Girl. Because she performed <clears throat> to Barbie Girl, and she had on one of those, like, uh, what is that movie where it's like a man and a woman with Glenn? Cl- no. Glenn or Glenda? No. Uh, Victor Victor? No. Anyway, she was doing half man, half woman. It, like the old carnivalesque hermaphrodite singing, act. Yeah, singing Barbie Girl. And then the sixth lip sync was against Eureka. And we won't find out the winner until next week. But I was pretty impressed with that. I thought Silky got the redemption she deserved. She did. I don't know that she deserves to come back based on the, you know, if we're talking about each lip sync on its own, she fared the worst with all the wardrobe malfunctions. Against Eureka. Against Eureka. Sure. But I think, knowing Drag Race, I think Silky would make the better story to come back. Yeah, I agree. Because she really did sort of claw her way back, and her attitude is so much better. And we know Trinity doesn't really care for Silky, so that would make it better than if Eureka came back. But maybe both will come back. They might both come back, yeah. Yeah. Which would be top six then, again. Uh, we also watched Drag Race Holland's third episode, which was Snatch Game. The only person I recognized on the dais was Cardi B, which which the, was the worst. Should not she should not have done Cardi. <laughs> that B. was but oh no 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 I'm sorry, Gra- Grace Jones and Cardi. Oh yeah, Grace Jones, both terrible. Which were both terrible, and both were in the bottom. So it was uh, re- no, what's the name of the queen? It was Love Mississi. Love Mississi and Ivy Elise. And Ivy Elise. Uh, yeah, I thought the lip sync, I thought Love Mississi won. Yeah, I didn't understand. They were so, but again, you know, the 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 production of the show assigned Love Mississi a narrative of like not loving herself enough and being very unsure, even though, you know, she's a grown ass man. And, you know, so they were putting that on her even before this episode. And then they just made such a big deal about her wearing a really well done prosthetic. Yeah, she so the the runway was like 
like a monster's ball. So they all had to sort of wear something like a, a creature. And Love Miss Sissy dressed up as the girl gremlin. And I thought it looked fantastic. And her performing in it was super entertaining. Oh, yeah. That's like meme, meme heaven there. <laughs> well, and I always think like if I were at a gay bar with a drag show, like whose performance would really send me. And I thought Love Miss Sissy, like if some drag queen came out dressed up as the girl gremlin... And did a pretty great lip sync. To I mean, Celine Dion, that was actually kind of emotive. And yes. I, I I thought it was excellent. Yeah, I was I, so surprised that, that she didn't that, that she was sent home. But Yeah, you can tell I think that they just It's I, I don't know. There's it's, certain predestined things I think. Yeah, for sure. Um, um and I, it's also kind of how they clobbered on the countess for not being a good King Louis the Fourteenth. And I actually thought she was kind of funny. I did as well. Moving on, I've been watching The Real World Las Vegas, which was season 12, which aired at the end of 2002. I had forgotten all about this show mm-hmm. until a co-worker had sort of reminded me about it and how good it was. Which is fun because in 2002, I was working in a casino in Las Vegas, and I do remember this show very well. And I got a chance to tour the suite at the Palms where the cast stayed it's not just one suite it's sort of multiple rooms but the main part we got to look at so i have very very fond memories of that time in my life um, which i think overshadowed my reminiscence of the (laughs) of the show and just how painful it is to watch even when i think about myself because I, I am the same age as those people now. Mm-hmm. Like, they're all in their early 40s. So, I mean, to think about the shit I said and did when I was 22. Well, it's never good to think about what you did and said when you were but, 22. But, but, you know, watching these people say just the most asinine things and be worried about the most ridiculous things and not really thinking about their future, per mm-hmm. se. Yeah, it's a pretty stark reminder of... You know, I, youth I, is wasted on the young. Yeah, for, for sure. Real. I mean, I haven't been watching any of that with you, but I think I was making dinner the other night and you, somebody broke up with somebody long distance and just the others were trying to comfort him saying like, you've had the worst day ever to which it's like, well, I mean, at least you were in a concentration camp is well, <laughs> how I react to people talking like that about their nonsense. But well, yeah, of course you do. But, um, I think, uh, I I'll once I finish the season, I think I have like four episodes left. I'll probably talk about it more in depth because I have very strong feelings about each of the cast members. Oh, okay. I mean So maybe maybe once I finish I'll do a little recap. Okay. Which sure. you really won't be a part of. Um moving on, do you do you know who Brett Butler is? The lady from Grace Under Fire. The lady from Grace Under Fire, which was a very popular um in the late 90s. Primetime sitcom that aired for five seasons in the late 90s on ABC. There was some controversy about her. There was controversy. Well, she, the show was canceled because she was very difficult to work with on her own account, became addicted to um, painkillers that originally were prescribed because she uh, had sciatica. Oh. And a doctor prescribed her Vicodin. 
So she's saying she was addicted to Vicodin, but who knows? She might have been a booze hound and addicted to other drugs. But she became very difficult to work with, and a couple of key cast members left earlier, like season three, season four, okay. because she was just impossible to work with. But I was reading about her because she was back in sort of the tabloids or the blogs because she, a friend of hers has started a GoFundMe because she's broke. And of course, everyone's saying like, how could you make $250,000 an episode? And, you know, to her account had made $25 million and now you're broke. But she says it's because of poor money management, poor financial decisions, and then her drug addiction. Um, so ultimately she ended up moving to somewhere in Georgia, like some rural area and had a farm, but that was foreclosed on. Now she's back in LA and she's like several months behind on her rent, which is $2,500 a month. So she has a GoFundMe asking for money. Um, she could live in a cheaper part of LA. Well, you know, I, it's just interesting that she has had some work like prior to the pandemic, which allowed her to kind of get back on her feet but then with the pandemic you know obviously has fallen on hard times but i just thought that was interesting because i do recall that show and same yeah i think i think i remember watching that with my mother well the show was based on her real life so part of it was like her issue with alcoholism and an abusive marriage you know and i don't know this lady her personal values and whatever but just knowing that someone who was kind of beloved and then you know, drug abuse is hard, especially when it, you know, a lot of people get roped into shit because of prescription drugs. Yeah. The, you know, the op opioid crisis that were legitimately prescribed to them. And it just, you know, snowballs into something that's really difficult to manage. Um, and then she was, I was reading how she was saying that she's just so ashamed, almost to the point of like death, like implying maybe that she'd rather kill herself than ask for money. And I can imagine how embarrassing it is. Oh, of course. Because yeah, because that's all everybody talks about. Well, and she's a known person, so it's not like, you know, I'm sure there are very famous people who know her mm -hmm. or know of her. So to think that, like, those people would know that she's hit rock bottom, it would be hard. But I think, you know, it is really important to ask for help when you need it because you can't suffer at the hands of wondering or worrying about what other people will think about you mm -hmm. yeah so that's what i thought when i was reading her story uh we were going to talk about only fans mm -hmm. because because all we're gonna have a new account <laughs> yeah no because there's all the all, all the headlines about how only fans said they're no longer going to allow sexually explicit <laughs> content but i think people jumped the gun because they said they will allow it based on their acceptable practices policy or whatever yeah the protocol that they will now outline for ensuring everyone is safe and uh consensual to which they haven't announced the specifics yet but it would make sense to me that they would allow sexually explicit content but only content that can be verified which you know it's not surprising you know, i mean i'm a very casual purveyor of pornography but you know several months i think sometime last year uh, I, I remember when Pornhub went through something where they re they had to remove a bunch of content because they couldn't verify uh, that everybody that was in all these videos w agreed to be in them. It makes sense to me that a platform wants to make sure that, you know, these 
sexually explicit videos or images are from people who are of age and consenting. And I think, yeah, that, I mean, that's it. I'm, I'm assuming that their new policy will involve ensuring that to which I think is a great idea because I also don't really view pornography, but when I have and do a lot of the shit on there seems like, do the, I don't know. A lot of shit you watch, especially like, you know, the section which I will often click on when I do look at stuff is like the, oh God, what is it? The category is like... Drag queen. No, like not hitting camera. Oh. And a lot of it is like people in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. And it's like, do, do these people know they're being taped or recorded? And I think that's part of the, you know, we're attracted to taboo things. Sure, but it's still not right. Like, so I... I do think it's appropriate to change the rules so that, because also there needs to be some licensing agreement. Like, so if I make a video with someone and then they post it and now who owns it in perpetuity and Mm -hmm. like, how do I monitor the kind of money, like if any I'm getting. So I think it does need to be a little more regulated, but that's all. Um, Yeah. I mean, I I think people are freaking out because, I mean, that is how some people make all their money now. Uh, but, you know, just let, let's let's let the dust settle and see how it goes. I don't think it's I don't think it's going to go the way of Tumblr. Well, let's hope not, because I, I mean, I haven't looked up Tumblr, but I'm assuming that their site traffic has plummeted, plummeted. Uh, but Which, anyway, it's just so funny to th- I mean, it's like in so many ways that Internet age is finally catching up with how to properly kind of monitor itself and, and behave. Well, also the, the, the reason this change is occurring is a lot of the financial backers of OnlyFans and the investors, you know, many of them and the other banks and entities these investors are affiliated with don't want to be associated with this type of sexually explicit content. So I, I just wonder like, well, to me, that's almost a different angle of it. Like, that that's a way to... That's almost kind of leaning into censorship is that we still don't embrace sexuality. Well, yes, that's what I was going to say because then reading about how, like, Visa and MasterCard had pulled from Pornhub because of similar issues with having content that may have not been verified or consented to. It's just like, okay, but... But give us a it, chance to clean it up. Well, and not then... not only that, it's just such a weird stance to take. Like, oh, we like we'll let you buy this little nasty material, but oh, I don't know. It it just seems like the line is blurry. It's still blurry, but it's it's starting to become more clear in ways that are important, such as uh, you know making sure everyone's consensual and of age. But uh, at the same time, there still is that kind of puritanical attitude what i'm saying is that the what's blurry is like how are people okay making money like these or these entities are okay making money off of pornographic material but then it's like oh but not certain type or to me it's just like either it just seems so weird like okay so Pornhub had some questionable content they need to clean it up Mm-hmm. It just seems so lame to be like, well, we're not going to associate with them anymore. Well, right. But yeah. you were already associated with pornography. Like, it, it's just so lame. And these other entities that will choose to invest in something. Now, I know OnlyFans didn't start out 
like they didn't say like oh this is going to be for sex adult. haven yeah it's not going to be for adult content i know it was more for like people to sort of manage their own content and make money on their own but it quickly turned into that so i can appreciate that a lot of the financial backers initially could have been surprised like yeah I thought people were just going to post like cooking videos and, you know, dog grooming videos. And now it's all, you know, sex. That seems fair to say, like, I don't want to be associated with that. I know, but it it, it became just very naturally of its own uh, a conduit for what is natural to human behavior. Sure. But I'm, what I'm saying is that if I if I didn't know that's what it was when I gave you three million dollars to invest I think it's fair to say, like, I, like I'm like i not okay with that, and sure. I'm going to pull out. Sure. That seems fair, but I just think, like, to have it go this far, and then to switch up and say, we're not going to do this anymore, it's there, I mean, it, the platform can do whatever it wants to do. It just seems like a weird choice to approach it this way. Mm-hmm. I feel like the angle should have been, we want to make sure that the content we, that we are allowing on our platform is I think the bottom line is money and 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 you know how much they have to pay all these top performers because after that Bella Thorne incident uh, that had some modifications as well and people weren't getting paid on time or there were lots of delays and and I think that for this platform to keep backers on board yeah th- this is how this is I, I think there will be more changes that come Sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it might be about money, but anyway, I just thought it was funny that everyone, like I'm seeing all these things on social media, like this mass exodus from OnlyFans. like, okay. You might as well wait and see what happens. Oh, the other thing I wanted to talk about is I feel like this is the danger and like, you know, people putting so much energy into something they have very little control over. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you're a YouTube star or you you're really popular on TikTok, and it's like, that can be taken away at any minute. Yeah. Like, it, it, it really is necessary to build a career that is transferable. Like, <laughs> I think it's fun to do these kind of things, but this can't be your, like, main, like, your main thing, because it could go away at any minute. Yeah, well, and it will eventually, because it'll be something else. But, God, I feel like I, I just got all these bug bites, like, in the last ten minutes. Oh, I was outside, I wonder. I don't know what you were doing. Ugh. Oh, well. The devil going to get you. Okay, you wanted to say something about Denis Villeneuve. Denis Villeneuve. Neuve. Well, he's the new director. Well, just because, uh, again, we had talked about, you know, Scarlett Johansson suing Disney, and Denis Villeneuve has come out, he's expressed, you know, discontent over uh, Dune is going to be able, uh, you're going to be able to stream it at the same time that it opens theatrically. And, of course, there's already... Like even Chloe Zhao came out that she's she's terrified that people are going to see this on streaming and not on the big screen. And I agree. Like this is an epic that I know. Well, I plan on seeing it in Venice, but uh, I I do think yeah that you should see it on the big screen. But there are some people that can't and won't. But uh, Villeneuve has come out saying that every contract he's signing now going forward, uh, he wants a theatrical window first. Well, you know times are changing. So, sure, I mean, you, as an artist, I feel like you should have an opinion of how you want your art consumed, but it's also a business, and... That's true, but, you know, eventually all of this stuff, 
is going to be available on Blu-ray, well, streaming or, you know, in some form that's not a theatrical window. Because, you know, unless you're a movie-going age and alive at the time, at the, the week that it's released, there might be a chance you'll never see that on the big screen. But it's, uh, it's kind of like Matthew Barney, who used to be married to Bjork, who did the, the Cremaster Cycle, uh, you know, who, who considers him more of an artist than a filmmaker. And only like half an hour of one part of the however many, however many chapters of the Cremaster Cycle is available on DVD or Blu-ray because he wants it to be a traveling art installation. And it's like, well, not everybody can go to art installations. I guess I don't understand why a film, like, why it can be released for a month in theaters and then put it on streaming. But I also understand that these streaming platforms have invested billions of dollars, mm-hmm. right? And, I mean, these parent companies have invested billions of dollars into these streaming platforms, and they need to have something, Right. So I'm not going to pay nine dollars a month for something and then not get access to cool shit. So it makes sense to me that while it might be hemorrhaging money for the theater owners, if people aren't going to see it in the theater. True. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's complicated and we're in a really weird time right now. But also, you know, these studios are the ones making these streaming platforms. Mm -hmm. So I'm assuming they don't give a fuck about these theater owners, well, they, they want it to all be self-contained. Like they want to make these movies and they want to be like Netflix and have millions of subscribers paying hundreds of million dollars a month for access to these movies. And then they, and they can bypass theaters. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what they want. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, Again, it's just, yeah. And I don't think they care about, they don't care about the, how the artists want their art scene because they really control how the artists make their art too that the medium has always been uh, especially studio backed uh, you know the business aspect of it always trumps usually what the artistic but they should have some is. control because it's their money like sure. if i'm giving you 100 million dollars to make a movie sure but we it's a slippery slope though because we get into you know forms of censorship and who is allowed to be uh, on screen as a star who who are we grooming the our culture for who's appropriate to be a star and what things are appropriate to see. That's why we have such a, a f- like fucked up view of violence versus sexuality in the films. Sure. But I think that's why independent film is important because when you don't have financial backers to that degree, you can, you're, you're more free to do whatever you want. Right. But when you're giving someone a hundred million, 200 million, $300 million, it's like, well, we have to make this money back. So we have to consider the market. Right. And then that's when all those things you mentioned come into play. Like, well, certain stars may not play well, certain subject matter, certain... But so, it, it's like, it's it's so fucked up, though, because it's we have to consider the market that we've, we've groomed to be, you know, neutered. <laughs> sure, but I think it's like, you know, this is why a lot of artists fail, because they don't have a mind for business, and they can't get past the fact that, like, you want... You know, you want people to consume your art, but it's also like, well, how are you going to do that? It takes a lot of money to get shit out there, and it's a big risk. And I think it is very much an artist mentality to feel like their art shouldn't be compromised. It's like, well, shit, girl. Like, how are we going to market a nine-hour movie right, with right, no right, dialogue right. I th- I think- that's, like, shown upside down? It's just like, well, that's not going to work. Sure, sure. You know? And I think, again, that's why independent film and smaller-budget movies are so important. Because they have more freedom. Usually. Yeah, it depends. Usually. Yeah, so yeah. The, so for people who care, for the people who complain about 
everything in the theater being so like neutered and bland, well, then you need to go f- support independent film. Right. But that's yeah. it. But for me, it's like, well, this man took hundreds of millions of dollars to make this movie. Mm-hmm. It's and, like, well, and, you have no. So, so to me, it's like, well, when like, you you signed on to to be in a film like as an actor with this enormous budget that's going to spend twice as much on marketing mm-hmm. and then you're mad that they did whatever they could to try to make their money back it's like well shit bitch then then don't sign on to blockbuster films because you know that the integrity of the whatever is not the most important part the integrity of the story and the filmmaking is the least important part of the process oh he also directed that film you really like arrival arrival with Amy Adams. Oh, yes. Oh, he did that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm not saying I don't care for him as an actor or a director. I just think when you... It's just like when you take um, like certain high-level positions that are like contract work. Yes, the pay is high, but the risk is high. And the fa- and like you might be terminated. Your contract might not may not be renewed. So it's like you're getting paid extra money because you kind of have to have a cushion because you're not going to be able to just transfer to a different position. I, f- I feel like you're giving up a lot of things the higher up you go, mm-hmm. which makes sense to everyone, right? So that's kind of how I feel about this. Like, You don't get to take all this money and make this big project and then well, really think that you have an opinion of how the people who gave you the money want to sell it. Like. <laughs> <laughs> sure, but for, well, you know, he and he's already talking about how he wants to make it a trilogy because, of course, you know, Frank Herbert wrote. Well, you keep talking that shit, and they, they, they might not let books. you. <laughs> well, you know, if it makes money, I'm sure they would have him. Oh uh, yeah, I'm do sure. more. Okay, movies you watched but didn't review: The Brotherhood of Satan, which you watched with me. I did. Yeah, Arrow Video put it out. Oh, about those elderly people. Yeah, like the, the elderly people that were catching people in the desert, and that shit was ridiculous. It was very dry. It I was I appreciated it taking itself seriously, and there's some production value. 1971 film. Again, you know, you know, some some things that Arrow puts out. I'm like, why did we put all these resources into this? But, uh, you know, watching Struther Martin as a baddie. And an almost, to me, unrecognizable L.Q. Jones, who I guess I'm not used to looking at as a young man, uh, were interesting to see. But other than that, I don't even really remember that much. I don't either. I was much more interested in the film that we started that we need to finish. That, uh, the Siege? Siege. The, Siege. A Canucks exploitation film. Um, yeah. Well, let's save that because okay. maybe we'll watch it and then talk about it in, on a podcast. Maybe. Okay. Okay. Next is 100 Minutes. Yeah, I was trying to catch up. I had the opportunity to watch some things out of Locarno after the festival finished on their uh, digital library. Uh, one was 100 Minutes. That's the title of it. Uh, it's And I, I really wanted to watch it because it's by a Russian filmmaker named uh, Gleb Panfilov, uh, who has you know several decades worth of films that i think none of them are available to watch in this country so i'm like well, i might as well watch this because i'll have no other opportunity to i'm sure uh it's a adaptation of uh the famous novel one day in the life of ivan denisevich uh and the title is about it's the length of the movie oh <laughs> i don't think it works um as i i also haven't read that novella since um high school but i from my the impression that i remember of that text it, it, i don't think it's quite reflected in this 
film adaptation that he tried to open up. Um, then I watched two other films out of their cinema of the present category that I had kind of ignored during the festival, including the the winner in that category, Brotherhood, about a trio of Bosnian brothers who must take care of themselves while their uh, dad's serving a 23-year-old or 23-month prison sentence for terroristic activities. Um which is fine. And a uh, German film called No One's With the Calves, like baby cows, not your leg muscle, uh, which won an acting award for Saskia Rosendahl, who some might remember from Kate, Shoreland film, Kate Shoreland's film Lore uh, from 2012. Okay. Uh, and then I'm supposedly supposed to be covering the uh, Fantastic Film Festival, but I just haven't afforded... <laughs> I haven't watched any of their stuff, anything really over there except for that documentary reference that I really liked a couple weeks ago. But um, I watched uh, something called The Unknown Man of Chandigore uh, from 1967, a restoration print of a Jean-Louis Roy film. Uh, Jean- Jean-Louis Roy only directed a couple things. He was Swiss. Um, but this was notable because it features... Uh, Serge Gainsbourg, who also sings an original song called Bye Bye Mr. Spy. Uh, very interesting, late, you know, of the period, uh, about a scientist who develops an apparatus called the Canceller, which apparently has the ability to sterilize atomic bombs, and everybody wants it. Uh, I really liked the look of it. It, uh, it. it was shot in several places, but there's some sequences in Barcelona, uh, and the buildings uh, were designed by Antony Gaudi, the famed architect. Uh, yeah. All right. Moving to projects of interest, something called Scarlet. Oh, yeah. So Pietro Marcello, uh, Italian filmmaker who uh, did The Mouth of the Wolf and uh, recently Martin Eden, which we reviewed. Well, I reviewed. You didn't watch it. Um, a Jack London adaptation. Uh, he's doing a French language film called Scarlet, uh, and so I think this is the first film he'll do that will also feature, focus on a female protagonist uh, about a woman uh, living between two world wars. That's all I know about it. But Something called Zillion? Uh, yeah, there's a Belgian filmmaker named Robin Prompt, uh, whose first film, The Ardennes, like back in 2016, I really liked. Uh, he did it uh, in English uh, I think it's a Canadian co-production called The Silencing with Nikolai Coster-Waldo, which, again, I think was a film I reviewed that you didn't watch uh, on the channel. And uh, that I didn't care for as much, but uh, The Ardennes I was really uh, happy about. His newest project, Zillion, is a period piece. It's about uh, the famous uh, the famous Antwerp uh, nightclub of the same name uh, set in 1997. Hmm. Something called Cocaine Bear. Yeah, I mean, this was announced before, but Elizabeth ben- Elizabeth Banks is uh, finally, she's shooting her, uh, the next film she's directing called Cocaine Bear. I believe it's set in the 80s, and it's about a true life uh, story about a bunch about of... About a bear uh, addicted to cocaine? Yeah, about a bunch of cocaine that got dumped in a wood and a, cocaine, and a bear that consumes it. Are you being serious? I'm being serious, yeah. Oh, no. Uh, with Elizabeth <laughs> Banks directing, too, I can only, I, I'm sure it will be entertaining. Uh, lastly, something called To Be Real. Uh, yeah, yeah, so Billy Porter, who's directing a movie right now, I believe, called What If. He's already uh, got a, been assigned to direct what's a project called To Be Real, which is 
described as a gay mashup between Superbad and Booksmart, uh, and it's produced through uh, Gabby Union's uh, production label. Hmm. Well, we'll have to see how that goes. We'll see. I don't know. Did she see his first film? Is it going to be good? Uh... All right. For today, you thought we would do something different, and you surprised me with a film. Well, so... I th- are we going to do this as a recurring thing? Sure. So like every week, every other week, w- we'll uh, take turns selecting a surprise film for the other one to watch? Yeah, I think, yeah, that could be fun unless there's a different topic we want to sure. go on about. But um, this week, Nick picked a movie and he started it. I had no idea what it was. We watched it this morning mm-hmm. and we haven't talked about it yet mm-hmm. but the film is called the layer of the white worm mm-hmm. it is um directed by ken russell a favorite of mine yes i'm going to read the plot synopsis when an archaeologist uncovers a s- strange skull in a foreign land the residents of a nearby town begin to disappear leading to further inexplicable occurrences okay so this movie was, uh, <laughs> I understand it's now a camp classic, uh, or a cult classic, sorry. But, yeah, it was pretty weird. Anyway, I didn't notice until we started watching this film that on a bookshelf in the house you have, I don't know if they're anthologies that say, or books about Ken Russell. Yeah. So, who's Ken Russell? Oh my God, girl, you've seen two other Ken Russell movies at least. What are they? Well, he, okay, so he's a very famous British um, director. Uh, he's One of his films is in my top ten of all time, which you've watched, The Devils. Okay. With Oliver Reed and Vanessa Redgrave. Okay. Uh, you've also seen Tommy. Okay. With The for the Who, you know, with Anne Margaret uh-huh. and Jack Nicholson uh-huh. and Tina Turner. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, just, uh, I love his 70s, well, specifically his 70s and 80s work, Uh Often worked with Glenda Jackson, uh, who won an Oscar for her performance in Women in Love. Uh, one of her Oscars. Uh, yeah, I just... I could watch Ken Russell. Um, I, I'm i curious to know why you chose this one. Well, actually, I'm working on something right now. Uh, I, I'm working on an outline involving cults. So I, I, I have a list of things I want to rewatch that had vibes that I remember liking. Um, okay. Uh, I enjoyed this movie enough. I think had I seen it in a theater, like a midnight screening somewhere fun, I think I would have, like, this would have been very entertaining. As it is, I still was entertained. Um, it's hard to take seriously, but I but I think there's some really good parts in it. Um, the main thing would be, is it, uh, who plays the lady? Well, so it's based on a book by Bram Stoker. Who wrote, okay. who wrote Dracula. So it's, you know, an old text. And I think that I, what I really enjoy about this film is it's it's walking a strange line of taking itself at, at one point very seriously, but also not. Right. I, I could see this being remade. Yeah. And potentially being quite good as like a more serious thing. Yeah. Um, but but I, I think the best part of the film is... is Amanda Donahoe. Is Amanda Donahoe. Um, as uh, Lady Sylvia. And also a young Hugh Grant, who's very handsome. Mm-hmm. But, okay, the basic story is we're somewhere in London, or Ireland. We're in the UK. We're in the UK. Uh, but And there's an archaeologist. From Scotland. From Scotland, who's digging up in, like, 
these two sisters live in this house and he's just like digging in their backyard because he's in school working on something and he discovers the skull of what looks like a big like lizard looking thing yeah they think it's they joke that it's a dinosaur the sisters are also notably named eve and mary which of course have uh connotations in christianity so so that so that happens which is of interest because there's also sort of this like lore in the town about this white worm kind of like similar to the loch ness monster uh Uh, and there's there's also actual lore about another worm uh yeah of the same like in reality but okay there's also like a big house nearby that is occupied by someone named Lady Sylvia. But she's only there. She's never there in the winter. Right. She only comes back in the spring. But she's back in town. And she finds out that this skull has been discovered. And she wants it. Because she is like a like a snake queen or some kind of priestess. Like mm-hmm. she worships this, this big worm. Which is considered like a god. And its name is like D- Dionynin or... Dionin. Dionin. A pagan snake god who has actually been trapped in this like rock crevice. Right, it's been trapped. So she worships this snake god. She also is kind of like a snake. Like she, it's it's almost like vampiric. Yeah, she's she, like, yeah. She shoots venom and if she bites someone, they sort of turn and become one of her like minions. But she is looking for a virgin to sacrifice to the snake. She's also slowly sort of like taking out people. The two girls whose home uh, was dug up by the archaeologist, their parents, the mom and dad, went missing several months ago. Several months prior. So they're sort of reeling with that. Um, and we find out that the priestess, Lady Sylvia, or Silva, I think it's Sylvia. So Lady Sylvia's responsible. And then Hugh Grant plays uh, Lord... Uh, James, I think. Lord James... Di- uh, what's his last name, though? He, he's the descendant of from the legend of the snake of the man that cut uh, the, the snake in two. Anyway, Lord James is also a neighbor, and he has money, and he's cool with one of the sisters. And... Who's uh, Catherine Oxenberg from Dynasty. So the two sisters, Lord James and the archaeologist Angus, who's played by the guy from Suicide Squad. Well, he's in a lot of stuff. He's Doctor Who, Peter Capaldi. Oh, okay. <laughs> the four of them sort of like work together to try to like figure out what's up with the Lady Sylvia and also trying to look for the missing parents. It all culminates with Lady Sylvia taking one of the sisters and attempting to sacrifice her when Angus is able to they're they're able to destroy the Lady Sylvia and the snake. Bas- basically the end, except that we find out that he the thinks- archaeologist gets bit and he thought he had an antidote, but he didn't. So the final scene of the film is the archaeologist with Hugh Grant's mm-hmm. character, and we're assuming he's gonna kill him. But anyway, I have a lot of notes. There were a lot of fun things about the movie. A lot of scenes that were... I, I mean, th- they're pretty campy. Yeah. But but Amanda Donahoe's vibe, uh, that, you know, that's how I, I... Like, her getting charmed out of the house in that, like, gold lame suit uh, is very much a Well, vibe, we'll get to it. A vibe so, I'd like to feel myself. I think the name of the film already tells you it's going to be kind of silly. Sure. 
right? And I didn't know this about this movie at all, but it opens with Angus, the archaeologist, discovering the skull. And the reaction of the two sisters is pretty laughable. So I knew what kind of movie this was mm-hmm. instantly. Um, the actor playing Mary, the one sister, I thought looked like Kate McKinnon. That's Sam. Her name is Sammy Davis. And... Um... Russell would cast her in the lead of his next film, The Rainbow, an adaptation of a D.H. Lawrence novel, which is also very good. After the discovery of the skull, we move on to a party at Lord James' house. And it's like a worm party. Like it's celebrating that worm or snake or whatever. Yeah, every every year. I actually thought that was really fun because they have like a band playing... Like an Irish ditty. Like an Irish punk song, which is kind of frenetic. And then you have like this... That, sort of replica of the worm going through the party. Yeah. That's it, as it gets cut in half, it narrates the story. And um Eve, that's Oxenberg, she is accosted by the snake, which of course is how the film ends up with her hanging over the snake pit. Oh, that's right. Uh so as Angus and Mary are headed home, they see like a suspicious car and then they tell like the local sheriff or cop and he goes over to check it. And it's because Lady Sylvia's house should be empty because mm-hmm. it's not spring yet. We find out that she's home and that's what the suspicious car was, but the cop gets bit by a snake. And right away you see uh, Lady Sylvia sucking the venom out of this like kind of gross cop's foot. <laughs> So, I mean, the first, like, 15 minutes is like, oh, okay, I see where we're going here. Um, but, uh, what's her name? Amanda Donahoe? Mm-hmm. She's, she, her body's banging. It is banging, She has yeah. a really cool look. Her costumes are pretty fucking uh, cool. And then her snake teeth, I think, look really cool. Yeah, they look good. She, she's got a little bit, of, she reminded me a little bit of Sharon Stone as Femme Fatale. She's not as pretty in the face as Sharon Stone, but that body and then, yeah. I mean, she's she's doing a fantastic job. Yeah. Of, I was reading Tilda Swinton was originally considered for that role. That would have been interesting, too. But, but uh, I think Amanda Donahoe, who earlier, before this film, did uh, a, a movie with Nicholas Rogue that I really like called Castaway with Oliver Reed. And then, of course, she appeared in um, uh, The Rainbow uh, with Sammy Davis after this. But I, I think Amanda Donahoe is probably best known for that television series, L.A. Law. Oh. There's a sort of a device used throughout the film where some characters have visions, like dreams, but they're sort of shown in like a... How would you describe... I'm specifically talking about when Eve... She, gra- so she grabs the Jesus on the cross and has a vision. That that um, Lady Sylvia spit venom on. Right. So she's it's like a cro- the cross and the venom. She's We learn that she's been reincarnated as this woman that used to worship the false god, a.k.a. Jesus. Um, and so she has a vision of th- her village being rampaged by the snake, by Diana and, and, and his minions. Uh, but But how would you describe the look of it? Because it looks like old film. Yeah. And it's kind of like, it is sort of like a psychedelic looking thing. And then you see like these nuns sort of running around the Jesus on the cross with like a snake attacking him. And then these soldiers are like raping these nuns. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's pretty bad shit. Yeah. Which I thought we see that sort of imagery more than once in the film. And I thought that was actually really cool because it kind of takes you out of the 
um, environment of the film because I think the film looks beautiful, like the the it, setting. It was shot by Dick Bush. Yeah, it does look great. Dick Bush. Um, He's, he did a lot of stuff. Uh, there's a scene where Lady Sylvia picks up this young boy named Kevin, who's not the most attractive. He actually reminded me of one of the boys. What's that British gay show I started that you were so upset that I watched oh, without you? It's a sin. It's a sin. One of the boys who's, I think, Scottish, the one who dies. Oh yes, yes. The the works in the neck, the necktie. Who works in like the men's tailoring shop? Mm -hmm. This kid Kevin looks like him, but um, yeah. Lady Sylvia seduces him and takes him home to have sex with him, and then gets him in the tub because he's dirty, and then she like bites his penis mm -hmm. and (laughs) drowns him. They played snakes and ladders. They played snakes and ladders. I thought that was good. Then going back to like those visions, Lord James has a vision where he's boarding a jet. And then mm-hmm. we get like pretty much all the characters in the film doing weird things. I thought that was that was pretty good. That was very interesting. Like his subconscious interpreting because he's the opposite end of the legend, right? This from a from a lineage of snake conquerors that like slayed the yeah. snake. Yeah. Um, oh, well, all the and then of course the plane looks very phallic. They're all it's full. Yeah, of phallic it works. Imagery. Um, getting back to how the film looks, I really like the setting, like the like the sort these sort of like manners out in like the farmland. And the cave that the snake had occupied, but then there was, like, a rock fall that trapped this, like, snake god. I thought that cave looked really good. I thought it did, too. Because they're actually, like, in a real cave Yeah, shooting. in location, yeah. Yeah, it, I thought it looked really, really cool. Then um, the four, Lord James, Angus, and the two sisters are looking thinking that they might find mom and dad, even though they've scoured the cave many because times Because the before. father's watch had been found. But in. they found the father's watch, and Lord James is starting to believe that, like... There's something afoot. Like, like there's something afoot. But anyway, uh, Eve decides she doesn't want to look, so she kind of leaves the three to go on their own. And when she exits the cave, we see Lady Sylvia in a tree. I thought that was a really good scene. Like the Cheshire cat. Yes, like the Cheshire cat in a tree. And she's like, oh... Will you help me? My cat, I saw a kitten crawl up here and I tried to help it, but now I can't seem to get myself down. And she asks Eve to hold her hand and she kind of floats down. Yeah. And then she, uh, through the power of suggestion, like gets Eve to come back to her house to obviously sacrifice her. Because Eve's a virgin. Because Eve's a virgin. But I thought like, again, that actor did a really good job, like just playing this sort of like campy lady villain. Um, oh, another really good scene is <laughs> I like that Lord James, Hugh Grant's character, he's like a rich guy, but he's not a douchebag. Yeah. Because he's like... Well, because he's because kind of actually in love the, with Eve, right? Yeah, the girl he's kind of in love with, Eve, she's technically his tenant. Mm-hmm. And he's he's not acting like some rich rich douchebag. I mean, because he lives in this mansion and has like a butler and um, housemaids. and But he seems really cool. But anyway, he's devised a plan where he wants to like extract Lady Sylvia from her house by playing snake charming music. Yeah. So he has his butler <laughs> named Peters set up like these big speakers. <laughs> and then he's trying to find snake charming music. So he finds like this Turkish album and plays it. And it's funny because we see... 
Lady Silva, like, it's like she, you know how, like, vampires sleep in a coffin? Yeah, she sleeps. Well, Lady Silva sleeps in one of those, like, baskets. That <laughs> those you snake see. baskets? Those snake baskets, like, when you see those videos from, like, India, yeah. the King Cobra. And then she kind of, it's, I think it's the poster art. Yeah, she Where slithers she slithers out. out of it, and then she, like, slithers out of the house. Yeah. I thought that was really fun. Oh, yeah, she, uh, yeah, the, the body, the moves. It's, yeah. It's captivating. So, she... That's when we see that the girl's mom and dad are still alive. They're just sort of under the spell of... Well, lady. they become vampires. They become like, yeah. Well, at least the mother. And um, the mother comes back to Lord James' house while Angus and May go check out Lady Sylvia's house. Well, she bites her daughter first. She does bite her daughter. Um, and Angus sucks out the venom, which... Seems like a lot. There's a lot of venom. There's a lot of venom, and he spits it into a cup, which looked very pornographic to me. Yeah. Um, well, there's lots of it. Even in Hugh Grant's fantasy on the airplane, like he uses the marker, the 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 red like rocket, erect penis. like the red rocket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, <laughs> there's a scene where because the mom is now, she's been lured to Lord James' house from the music with by the music. So she tries to attack Lord James and he cuts her in half with a sword. Mm -hmm. But the way he does it, it's kind of done in slow motion. And then he falls into a drum set. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of little details in the film that are kind of like making fun of itself. Yeah. That I think are really cute. Yeah, it's charming. Because then Angus is, he's put on like a bagpipe outfit and now he's seducing the other people who've been bit by Lady Sylvia to get them out of the house uh, which is effective. And then when he finally sits down to take off the bagpipe, he sits down and the bagpipe kind of farts. Mm -hmm. So again, I thought I really liked that. Then <laughs> there's a seed where Angus throws like a mongoose. Yeah. Cause that's a, a enemy cause of they're the snake. an enemy of the snake. So he has this mongoose and he throws it into like the layer where he thinks lady Sylvia is. And she throws that mongoose back yeah, in. Like, right <laughs> like in the you, face. Like, you really thought this mongoose was going <laughs> to hurt this big-ass lady? You hear it scream. Yeah, you hear it scream, and then you see this bloody mongoose <laughs> being thrown back at him. Um, when Lady Sylvia is about, like, she's sort of describing to Eve, like, what she's going to do to her. She has this big dildo mm -hmm. that looks like like a spike like a weapon yeah like a weapon like it's big like it's well, gonna kill this that's lady. what the sacrifice is she's gonna rape her with the dildo right so then she um so when the actual sacrifice happens the ceremony is that lady sylvia is gonna rape eve with this like i mean this dildo is like as big as my arm and it's super sharp on yeah. one end and it has carvings in it but then the dionynin mm -hmm. dionin the snake god is like anxious to get out. So and, the, the, and Hugh Grant has gotten a team of people injecting poison gas into the lair. Right. So it's sort of like pushing the, the God out faster. So Lady Sylvia's like, oh, well, no time for ceremony. We just got to get this over with. So she doesn't end up raping Eve. So she cuts her out. But um, the finale... Mm -hmm. Like the battle against like the like the main thing that's happening happens very quickly. It does, yeah. Because all of a sudden, like they fall into the pit where the snake is, and Eve is holding on for dear life. But then 
Lady Sylvia is holding onto her arm. So then Angus is like slowly chopping off Lady Sylvia's yeah. arm. But it happens pretty fast. And she falls right into the snake's mouth. She gets eaten. And then Angus throws a grenade into the snake's mouth and blows it up. Mm-hmm. So I was a little... I feel like the... Because that's the finale. It happens the, very fast. The denouement. Yeah, it just happens so fast. I kind of... It does, but it, I thought it looked good. It, it looks good, and I think maybe I was disappointed because I was enjoying what was happening. You so wanted more. I guess I wanted more. They just make it happen so fast. Well, I just, you know, I miss tangible effects, too. And uh, the... I thought Dionin looked like a tremor or that thing that pops out of the xenomorph's mouth. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But it looked pretty cool. That he, the head was constructed from a Volkswagen Beetle hood. Oh well, that makes sense. Um, yeah, it, yeah. It Angus had uh, given himself the antidote, so we find out that he's made an antidote. So throughout this film, because we do, Angus is missing for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like he, for like thirty minutes, we really don't hear from him. And then he comes back to help them figure out what's what and destroy the lady. But at the end, he says, oh, yeah, I um, I found the antidote. Like, like I sent it to the lab. They uh, analyzed it, and now I have the antidote. And he already gave the antidote to himself and to... Hugh Grant. And, and to the girls. Mm-hmm. So the girls are at the hospital... <clears throat> Hugh Hugh Grant and Angus are in the car headed to go get some food before they go visit the girls. And then, but before that happens, the phone's ringing and Angus goes to pick up the phone and it's the, like the nurse from the lab saying, Hey, there's been a mix up. I gave you the wrong serum. That's not the antidote. That's an injection for arthritis. (laughs) So that means that they're all fucked basically. But um, yeah, I think that this the story's very interesting. I think the production value is very good. The film looks really cool. There are a lot of really fun touches um, that make it easy to like because it's not taking itself very seriously. Yeah. Uh, the nurse at the end is played by... That was the debut of Gina McKee, who many might uh, know... Like, she's in a ton of stuff, but like Notting Hill or Atonement or In the Loop, but she played kind of an evil mother figure herself in mirror mask i would give this uh i would give it three and a half out of five. Oh yeah i mean i i think it's fantastic but uh you know ken russell in the 80s i think you still never seen crimes of passion right i don't think so oh with kathleen turner and anthony perkins where he's this street preacher street priest and she is doing this belle de jour shit where she's like a clothing designer by day slash prostitute by night named china blue and anthony perkins is trying to basically kill her with this metal vibrator oh um yeah crimes of passion is fantastic but yeah if this were playing at like the new beverly or you know some fun cute theater like later at night i i would watch it again i think it was it'd be fun to watch in a theater with people because i haven't seen this since i was a teenager kind of first discovering ken russell and i remember renting this with my parents uh uh another scene that i really liked uh was when hugh grant suddenly shows up at lady sylvia's doorstep oh yeah right as she's killed that kid that she picked up and he they're they're kind of playing off one another and she's trying to uh be devious and he noticed the snakes and ladders on the floor and she's like oh i'm just 
I, I have an insane fear of snakes. He's like, well, then why do you play snakes and ladders by yourself? I actually really liked Hugh Grant in this. He's very charming. Oh, side note on that. But but when she, ta- she takes the board game and tosses it in the fire. Yeah. And as she's looking at it, she goes, Rosebud. Oh, Citizen King. Yeah. I thought that was great. Uh, but Hugh Grant, this is 88. Uh, so this is right after he did Maurice, the, the Merchant Ivory production, which is a gay film that oh. is based on the, I believe, posthumous novel by E.M. Forster. Um, and we own Maurice. I, I highly recommend watching that as well. Uh, and notably, Ken Russell directed two movies this year. Uh, besides Lair the White Worm, he also had... Uh, Another favorite of mine, uh, Salome's Last Dance. Uh, oh. So, yeah. which And this film had Oscar Wilde references as well. Well, you have four minutes. Uh, anything you want to talk about before you say goodbye? Um, what, do you, what, what are our plans for this coming week? For, because you leave... I won't leave for... I don't leave till the 31st. Which is next week. Yeah. Okay. We have another weekend. Oh, okay. So, so you you will be choosing the secret selection next week. Oh, yeah, we got to figure out what that would be. I, I can't even imagine something that I've seen that you haven't, I guess. Well, it doesn't matter, really. Or it could be something that... We haven't seen in a while. That, that neither of us has seen. Well, because I thought this was a way... I, to... I would prefer to watch something older. Right, but I thought this was a way to satisfy also, like, people requesting us People talking... do request us talking about older classic films, but I feel like... I don't know, it's just hard to talk about something like Mommy Dearest because... Which we did just get on Blu-ray. Yeah, but I feel like we should review that, but not the movie. I think we should review the special, like, features. Okay. Bonus features. But, um, yeah, I'll have to think about that. But I don't even know what we're doing this week. I know I'm busy with... Candyman. Oh, Candyman. I'm excited for Candyman. Yeah, I get to see some uh, pre-Tiff and Venice stuff, so that's great. Okay. I'm excited for Um, that. Yeah, you need. Yeah, that's. I think all we have, unless you have anything else. No. Oh, um, I, to share a quote since I've been doing that, I had a quote from Mr. Ken Russell, uh, who, which I thought would be appropriate considering the film. Um, I'm interested in failures. The homosexual genius, the suicidal genius, the fantasist genius. All these people are heroes to me. Oh, bless his heart. <laughs> all right, toodaloo. Bye. I'm sorry.